0: Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on Making Sense, the hub for JPMorgan Morgan Corporate and Investment Bank podcasts. In this episode of Market Matters, we'll hear from the FIC Market Structure team. They'll be talking about some of the regulatory initiatives and microstructural developments on our radar, which could shape market liquidity in the fixed income, currency, and commodity markets.
1: Hi, I'm Marity Cleary, and welcome to Market Matters. In this episode, we're taking a look at the U.S. Treasury market structure, which has received a lot of attention lately, as we see more proposals being put forward to enhance the market's resilience following the dislocations we saw in March 2020. There's a lot of momentum in this space right now, so to help us get a sense of some of these moving pieces, I'm joined by Gil Holmes, Head of Global Rates Trading, and Kate Finlayson, Head of Thick Market Structure. How are you both doing?
2: Doing well. Thanks, Meredith. I'm doing great. Happy to be here.
1: So I think to kick things off, it would be useful for our audience to get a sense of the importance of this topic. Why should we care about the overall functioning of the U.S. Treasury market, Kate?
2: Well, there's no doubt that the U.S. Treasury market is a central component of the global financial system. You hear the phrase a lot that this is the deepest and most liquid in the world, which is true. Today, the number of outstanding Treasury securities is over $23 trillion dollars. And on an average trading day, about $600 billion of treasury securities change hands. On top of that, treasury rates provide the fundamental benchmark for pricing most financial assets. These securities are often considered the global risk-free asset. And so this is why, as you say, Meredith, we've seen a lot of regulatory and policy attention in this space to assess the potential causes of those market dislocations and possible measures that could be put in place to bolster its resilience.
1: Yes, definitely. And Gil, it would be great to get a sense of the trading perspective. How has this market evolved over the last few decades?
3: Well, the US dollar is the world's reserve currency. So, naturally, it makes sense that the US treasuries would be a safe store of value for people. And it's been that way for over several decades. Now, not only has the number of treasuries outstanding grown nearly two and a half times in the last decade, but the types and number of investors has increased substantially as well. On any given day, treasuries are traded by a wide range of participants in the market. Those include central banks, insurance companies, pension funds, asset managers, hedge funds, banks, and other types of accounts. Over time, these clients in the space have become more sophisticated and treasuries are no longer used solely as a store of value. Treasuries have become a key tool to hedge interest rate risk, express a positional view, and even identify relative value opportunities across different treasury securities.
1: And are we seeing changes in how treasuries are being traded?
3: Most definitely. Treasury trading began a long time ago as a purely voice traded market. In the last five to 10 years, has become highly electronified with about two-thirds of the volume going through electronic platforms or an ATS. So the speed of execution has been a hugely positive development as it supported the growth in trading volumes and increased liquidity. The electronification has also facilitated the introduction of new market makers in the form of principal trading firms, or PTFs, which execute algorithm-based trades and now account for a large percentage of the total volume on the broader security markets.
1: So, Kate, if we turn to the underlying market structure here, what trends have shaped how market participants access liquidity?
2: Okay, so the treasury market has many components. It's split into the trading of cash, repos, and derivatives. If we focus on the cash side, which is the outright purchase and sale of treasuries, the inter market is composed of dealers trading with each other or with PTFs, as Gil mentioned there. And Gil, you also mentioned electronification. In the interdealer market, the majority of the trading in the market is done on electronic platforms through central limit order books or clubs where algorithms match orders. And the continuous nature of US treasury clubs has given rise to more automated trading strategies similar to those that we see in FX and equity markets. And electronification has been particularly concentrated in the most recently issued or on the run treasury securities, whereas the more seasoned off the run securities tend to be traded on voice based interdealer broker platforms.
1: Okay, so that's the dealer to dealer side of the cash treasury market. What about the dealer to customer side of the market?
2: So there's still a strong voice element in the dealer-to-customer or D2C market, which has been roughly split 50-50 between electronic and voice execution. It's a largely quote-driven market with clients either requesting quotes via voice or electronically using the RFQ protocol on multi-dealer platforms. And this is in contrast to the D2D market where you have electronic streaming of prices on a club or via API. That said, I mean, we are seeing a bit of a pickup in streaming in the D2C market. Uh, Direct streams allow investors to receive continuous prices and sizes at which their sell-side counterparts are willing to both buy and sell treasury products. And once they have these aggregated streams together, buy-side firms effectively have access to a customized club with immediate actionable liquidity and reduced information leakage.
1: So now that we have some context in terms of the market's relevance and overall structure, let's come back to the regulatory focus, where we've seen various academic studies, for example, from the Brookings Institute and the Group of 30, looking to enhance the overall functioning of the market. One of the main elements that we've seen come up a lot is increasing transparency here. Kate, what are your thoughts on this?
2: You're quite right there. Some of these studies you mentioned have looked at whether to increase the quantity and granularity of data and reporting available, not only to regulators themselves, but also the public. Most recently in June, the Treasury Department released a Request for Information, or RFI, to explore the costs and benefits of additional post-trade transparency for secondary market cash treasury transactions. And that RFI looks at considerations for the design of additional transparency, including the differences among security types, the liquidity of the securities, whether they're off the run or this is on the run, how they traded, the reporting timeframes and how best to measure liquidity in the market.
1: Yeah, and as you know, SEC Chair Gary Gensler in particular has been a strong supporter of this increased market transparency.
2: Well, yes, at a conference in April, he suggested that the scope of Treasury instruments subject to post-trade transparency should be expanded and should include U.S. Treasuries on a transaction-by-transaction basis, which at present is published in an aggregated form on a weekly basis so this is quite a notable shift, right? Going from something that is published in an aggregated form to trade by trade to the public. That's really impactful.
3: Yeah, so the treasury market, you know, we know it's the largest and most liquid, but the distinct nature of the investor base, types of flows we see in the limited balance sheet, all that can drive occasional liquidity in something like the off-to-run treasuries or even in larger transactions. Given this occasional poor liquidity, it's super important for us to ensure that any additional transparency would actually not harm liquidity any further than it is today. We believe that any transparency regime should be aligned with the underlying principles supporting the risk-based intermediation and long-term investment, which are both critical to the market.
1: And Gil, can you clarify why on-the-run treasuries and off-the-run treasuries behave differently in this market?
3: The -the on-the-run segment of the treasury market generally trades in very tight price increments with multiple pricing sources available. Enhancing that data with post-trade price transparency can be beneficial to the participants who actually don't have that information available at their fingertips. So off-the-run treasuries, however, are traded significantly lower volumes than on-the-runs. Given those lower volumes, increased post-trade transparency may make it easy for the public to identify some of these specific off-the-run flows, and those flows can be large and executed over longer periods of time. For example, if the public data identifies programmatic unwinds of an illiquid off-the-run treasury, then other market participants may change their behavior on that security as they see those trades going through the marketplace. Additionally, if the illiquid flow information is made fully transparent, dealers may even be forced to widen their bid-offer charges so that they can account for the risk of the participants in the marketplace actually identifying that flow and trading their behavior differently.
1: Okay, so it's clearly very important to take into account the different liquidity profiles in the market. Kate, could it be argued that this broader effort to enhance transparency is behind this concept of the trading venue parameter? This is something that we've written a lot about in our reports.
2: Yes, something that we've seen in in the U.S., the EU and the UK is this focus on what constitutes multilateral activity and should take place on a regulated venue. So there's this concept of additional regulatory oversight and at least in some jurisdictions, increased reporting and transparency associated with trading on venue. In January, the SEC proposed to expand the definition of an exchange to include systems that offer the use of non-firm trading interest and communication protocols, bring together buyers and sellers of securities, and at the same time, amendments to its ATS and exchange regulatory construct were re-proposed, which would, among other things, subject platforms that trade only government securities to ATS regulation. And this would encompass venues offering cash, repo trading, and potentially a much broader set of platforms and communication tools. We see the buy side start to utilize execution management systems, for example, either by third party providers or developed in-house. And these systems introduce workflow efficiencies and can help to aggregate pre-trade data, which then helps to inform execution decisions. So under the current proposals, some of these systems may need to seek registration. Right. And as a result, may incur the costs associated with being a regulated trading venue. And so we would, in theory, see more trading venues with overall increased costs, which the platforms themselves would take on and those wishing to use those platforms.
1: Okay, interesting. And Gil, how could this change in the platform landscape that Kate just was speaking about? How could this impact the provision of liquidity in the market?
3: Well, it's important that the regulatory framework for trading venues continues to evolve and keep pace with the technological progress in the market. This would help ensure that the trading environment remains reliable, stable, and trustworthy for investors. But we want to make sure that the regulation that's introduced is done in a way where it creates this trustworthy environment without actually negatively impacting innovation and efficiency in the market. And the regulatory scope of the trading venues should be set appropriately without capturing things like internal trading systems. So new trading venues can provide transparency and actually create certain efficiencies as well. But if they're overlaid with complex regulation, you run the risk of making it more difficult and expensive to trade.
1: And another theme that has emerged following this period of volatility has been expanding central clearing in the U.S. Treasury market. what are some of the considerations
2: here across cash and repo? Yes, I mean, several working groups, um, academics, and regulators have proposed wider central clearing as a potential solution to some of the market dislocations. Of course, our team has noted in the past, it's really important to differentiate between cash and repo clearing, where the impacts could be quite different there. On the cash side, more analysis needs to be done as clearing is not without its costs, And On the repo side, the market already has existing solutions that can be further developed. At the end of last year, Chair Gensler asked SEC staff to explore measures in terms of broadening the scope of clearing to include treasuries, cash, and repos there. So we are likely to see some proposals emerge on that. As I said, I think it would be really important for the SEC to conduct a rigorous cost-benefit analysis on any such regulatory proposals. While clearing has its benefits, the costs are cumulative. So we think of the end investor here too.
1: Gil, do you think that there are other sources at play that are causing these market disruptions? And what are some of the potential solutions here?
3: Well, I think it's important to consider the context of some of these conversations around market dysfunction. In my view, the volatility has been driven by two very distinct issues. So first, the rapid increase in inflation has driven extreme uncertainty around central bank policy rates. This uncertainty has driven large rate movements with uncertain paths causing volatility to go up. In a highly volatile and uncertain environment, liquidity naturally becomes impaired and is more challenging to execute risk, even with a bit wider bit offer. The second issue is related to the growth in the treasury market that I mentioned earlier. The risk intermediation capacity of banks and other market participants has not grown commensurately. This lack of capacity has driven some of the extreme price action we see in off the runs, and more recently and acutely in the 20 year sector. So the first of these two issues is not something the regulators can solve. Clearly it's driven by uncertainty of inflation and rate policy. However, the second issue is related to risk intermediation capacity, which is something that has been discussed previously and even addressed by temporary changes to the supplementary leverage ratio. While the netting benefits provided by clearing have been highlighted in recent academic studies as a potential way to increase intermediation capacity, we have found that those benefits are actually quite marginal. A more direct way to increase dealer intermediation capacity would be consider permanent adjustments to risk agnostic size-based capital and balance sheet constraints such as SLR and GSIB.
1: Well, Gil and Kate, thank you very much for providing your insights today. We, of course, anticipate even more activity in this space, given the ongoing focus here, and we'll no doubt continue to monitor these developments as they come out. To our listeners, please stay tuned for more thick market structure features on J.P. Morgan's all-new Making Sense channel. Hope you have a great day.
0: If you're enjoying this conversation, you can subscribe to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Follow J.P. Morgan's Making Sense on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of JP Morgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates, together JP Morgan, and do not constitute research or recommendation advice or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument, are not issued by research, but are a solicitation under CFTC Rule 1.71. Reference products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. J.P. Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. The FIC market structure publications or to one newsletters mentioned in this podcast are available for J.P. Morgan clients. Please contact your J.P. Morgan sales representative should you wish to receive them. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures.